0: Would you pray with me, please? Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still that we might hear from you. Amen. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Pick up the morning newspaper. Turn on the morning news. Listen to things that friends and family say to you and confide in you. look deeply within yourself. This world, beautiful and wondrous and remarkable as it no doubt is, this world, things in it are simply not the way they are supposed to be. For the past five weeks, we've been considering the life and crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And we've been identifying various symbols and motifs used by the New Testament writers to try to explain what Jesus' life and crucifixion were ultimately about, what they meant, what Jesus meant achieved and today as we conclude this five-week series I think it's important that we go back to the beginning and once more say this that every image every symbol used by the New Testament writers to try to explain what Jesus's life and death meant every one of these images is but a different poetic attempt to try to explain how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus were effective in restoring things to the way that things are supposed to be. Now, the dilemma before humankind, lest we forget, is this that sin and evil, through the primordial catastrophe that we typically refer to as the fall, that sin and evil somehow got their talons into the human organism. So much so that it is now as if we suffer from a disease of sorts, that we have a condition of sorts. That condition being that that which we want to do, we so often don't do, and that which we do want to do, Well, far too often we don't do that. And gang, we can call this propensity in human nature whatever we want to call it. But whatever we do call it, let us understand that it is a condition. Thus, despite our very best efforts and intentions, this condition within humanity continues time and again to further mar creation. The result being that the creation God originally deemed very good and originally tasked humankind to serve as caretakers of continues to be further and further ravaged and despoiled and beset by the impaired caretakers who, despite our best intentions, can't properly steward it. This is a problem. And when Saint Anselm famously writes, perhaps you have not yet considered the gravity of sin, this is what Anselm means, this problem. Not that the various bad things that we've done in our lives are graver than we may have thought, though they very likely are. Instead, he means that the condition that plagues humanity is far graver than we have likely thought, far deeper embedded, far more entrenched. So let us understand the dilemma we face as human beings is not simply an individual dilemma, not simply a matter of individual persons doing individual wrong deeds, but instead the dilemma inheres in our shared human nature And this thing that besets us all. There is a way that things are supposed to be, and this is not it. We all know that. And this is not it because sin and evil affect us and compel us and often overcome us in ways that we struggle to fully resist. We as human beings were designed to be and are called to be caretakers of a very good creation. Yet we can't properly take care of creation until we are purged of our besetting malady. And the only way to be purged of our malady is for some human being, any human being, one of our kind to somehow fully resist sin and evil to thereby overcome the consequence of sin and evil, which is that which we call death, and then in overcoming death, to thereby start anew our human nature. That's the way out. So this is our dilemma. This is what we need, yet not one of us can fully do it. Oh, helpless human beings that we are, Who then will save us from our intractable dilemma?" Let's do a quick recap. Week one of this sermon series, we looked at the New Testament motif of the new Adam. Week two, we looked at the New Testament motif of being ransomed from bondage to sin and evil. Week three, we looked at the motif of moral example. Week four, last week, we looked at the motif of blood sacrifice. And now, finally, today, as we wrap up this series, we will look at the motif of substitution or representation. And as we do, I hasten to underscore yet again that each of these motifs, each of these images, each of these symbols, and there's so many more than just the five we've done, I hasten to underscore yet again that each of these is trying to explain the same phenomenon in a different poetic way. Each one is trying to explain how sin and evil have been in anticipation purged from human nature. Each one is trying to explain how things will one day be brought back into line with the way things are supposed to be. Each one is trying to explain how humankind will one day be restored to our original and rightful role as apt caretakers of a very good creation. All of these images are in their own way trying to explain that. And again, for this ultimately to happen, one from among us, from our kind, had to resist sin, evil, and death, yet not one of us could. Thus, the story tells us Jesus Christ, God become human, became our representative, became our substitute. Substitute. Hence the motif of substitution. So when we say that Jesus did what he did in our place, what we mean is that he entered into humanity and did for us that which one of us had to do, but that which none of us could properly do. Do you follow that? At its most basic and helpful level, this is what the biblical motif of substitution means. Not that Jesus was punished as a substitute in our place, as if someone had to die in order to satisfy God's desire for justice, and so Jesus did that for us. But rather that there can be no justice in a world forever marred by sin and evil. And thus Jesus became the substitute human being whose righteous life and triumphant death could overcome sin and evil and thereby restore justice. Now depending on where you go or whom you listen to, this motif of substitution is quite regularly put forward as either the only way of understanding the life and crucifixion of Jesus or as a backward and retrograde way of understanding the life and death of Jesus. Either substitution is the whole ballgame or else it ought never to be brought into the ballgame at all. And to my mind, both of these ways of thinking about the substitution motif are wrong. Those who call substitution, or this motif, backward and retrograde, are right in resisting a concept of God that suggests that God would require human death in order to be satisfied. That's barbaric and pagan and awful, and it ought to be rejected. But that's not what the motif is ultimately suggesting. Meanwhile, those who hold substitution up as the only way of understanding the life and crucifixion of Jesus, well, they too are right in acknowledging that substitution is a biblical motif and that in a very specific way, Jesus did serve as our substitute. Yet they are wrong in thinking that the substitution was ultimately about God meeting out punishment on one representative human being. That's not what it's about. The problem, I think, comes at least in part from how individualized popular Christian teaching, particularly of the last century, has often made salvation in general and this motif of substitution in particular. Thus, when we hear folks say, that should have been me up there on that cross, He died in my place. What folks usually mean by this is that they as individuals have done bad sinful things in their lives which they of course have and that God's righteousness cannot abide bad sinful things in God's good creation which it of course cannot and that they therefore should die for these things. Yet, instead of them dying for these things, Jesus Christ substituted himself, suffering the agonizing death that they themselves should have suffered. And this is where the biblical teaching has gotten distorted. Those first two elements are exactly right. This final element is wrong. For while our own individual sins do matter enormously, far more enormously than we probably give credit for, and while our own individual sins do continue to mar and frustrate the designs for God's creation in ways we know not of, the solution to these things for God has nothing to do with someone being punished for it. But has everything to do with delivering us from the condition that causes these things to happen and happen and happen. Gang, it is profoundly biblical to say that Jesus died in my place and to say that Jesus died for my sin. He did. But it's important that we fully appreciate Jesus didn't just die in my place. And for my sin, as if the real problem were my or anyone else's individual transgressions, important and inexcusable as those absolutely are, no, far bigger than that, Jesus died in humanity's place. And for humanity's condition of sin. Thus he did in our place, as our substitute, if you will, That which we could not. And so when we say he died for our sin, we mean that his sinless life and his triumphant death purged from humankind this condition, this malady of sin that ails us all. Not that he suffered the punishment that we as individuals deserve to have suffered. The story, dear family, the full comprehensive Biblical story from cover to cover, from creation to consummation, is not ultimately about punishment. It's about redemption and restoration of what was originally very good and what needs to be very good again. And the story is not just about the redemption and restoration of individual human beings either though that is an important part of it. No, instead, the story is about the redemption and restoration of human nature and the entire creation itself. It's that big and awesome of a story. You do not understand, Caiaphas says to the council in John chapter 11, our gospel lesson for today. You do not understand, he says, it is better for one man to die for the people than to have the whole lot destroyed. Well, Caiaphas was right in a deeper way than even he understood, as John says in his narration. For until some human being fully resisted sin and evil, and thereby overcame death on our behalf. Until then, the whole lot of humankind would continue to be, in Caiaphas' words, destroyed by sin and evil and death. Inevitably, inexorably, such is our human dilemma. That as significant and powerful as we no doubt are, that we nonetheless are always vulnerable to sin and evil, which lead humanity inexorably to death, just like infection leads inevitably and inexorably to sickness. One person had to do for us that which we could not do. One person had to be our human representative One person had to be our substitute. So Jesus Christ took our place. Jesus Christ died for our sin. Jesus Christ did for us that which we could not. And because he did, and follow me here, dear family, because he did, he pulled human nature out the other side of death and into new life, redeemed life, restored life, such that even now, Jesus Christ, fully divine, yes, but no less fully human than he was when first he rose from the grave, even now. Jesus Christ in his redeemed, glorified humanity sits at the right hand of the Father, preparing things for the coming day when he will consummate his kingdom here on earth as it is there in heaven. And on that day the trump shall sound and the dead shall rise and human nature will be cleansed of its sinful infirmity. And on that day we shall be as he is, For in becoming our substitute, he has become our redeemer. Let us fully appreciate, dear family, the breath of that new life blows from God's realm into ours even now, enlivening and inspiring our efforts to bend this present broken world more in line with the way things should and one day will be. He is the new Adam. Because of him, we have been ransomed from sin and evil. We have been cleansed by his blood. He is the example of true, fullest humanity. He is our substitute. Oh, thanks be unto God for all of these different ways of simply saying that due to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, things will one day once more be as they are supposed to be. And all God's people said, Amen. We come now to the point of our worship service where we rehearse for that coming day. For that coming day when war will be no.